I could be more productive if there wasn't often a fear about producing things that aren't quite where you want them to be. The greatest inhibitor of my creativity would be fear. The concern about how the world is going to react to what I'm doing. When I tell adults, I'm an art teacher, quite a few often say, oh, I'm not creative at all, I can't draw a straight line, or I can only draw stick figures. Many of us will relate to growing up and seeing your idols in magazines, and it seems like something these other figures who, from the age of three, were amazing at music, grew to do. Often, great artists seem to loom over us and intimidate us, and say, you know, we'll never be as good as them, why should I even try? Does creative inspiration come out of nowhere like a bolt of lightning? Or do you need to be born with special gifts? Someone like Pablo Picasso, perhaps. Picasso made thousands of drawings, paintings, sculptures, prints and ceramics throughout his life. And he made it look easy. Most of us can't identify with creativity on that scale. So where does inspiration come from and how can we get some for ourselves? I'm Samuel Shelton Robinson, and in this podcast, I'll talk to artists, musicians and writers to pick apart some of the myths about creativity, especially those that circulate around Picasso. Here's curator Akin Borhad Hume. One of the things which I find so absolutely extraordinary about Picasso is that he almost cannot help himself to make art. It feels a little bit like whatever happens in his life, he needs to turn the experience into an artwork in order to begin to understand it. When one looks at the catalogue resume here of Picasso and you see these dozens of volumes and begin to get a sense of how much he actually produced, this clearly was a way of making art which wasn't necessarily geared at only producing individual masterpieces or thinking where they would be exhibited or who they could be sold to. It was a way of living, of being in the world. Creativity doesn't just happen straight away. You need to rework things, rework things. And it's not all about drawing and getting everything in perspective. It's really about ideas and how you want to express them. My name is Susanna Powell. I'm a secondary school art teacher at a university technical college. I'm also a practicing artist. Some students have this self-belief that they're not creative and they look at other students who sit there busying themselves and coming up with all these ideas and they just think, wow, I wish I was creative. Everybody's got the capacity to be creative and you've got to find your sort of your way in. There's this really curious link between drawing and creativity, which just isn't true. I think it's really about dispelling that myth from the classroom. When they're small and drawing, nothing they do is wrong. If they draw a few squiggles with a couple of dots, that is a sheep. And there's no disputing that that is a sheep because the artist, who's only four years old, has said it's a sheep. As they get older, they start becoming aware that actually it doesn't look so much like a sheep and the sheep doesn't have a mouth and it's kind of falling over and I don't know why it's bigger than that ironing board that I've drawn there. They start looking older children's drawings and they start to get that vulnerability. Getting students to be comfortable with mistakes, that's saying to them it's okay to be vulnerable and have uncertainty about what you're doing. 
because once you've gotten to that position, then the exciting bit's going to happen. I was at a conference and one of the speakers referred to artists who fly under the radar. And I thought, that's me, I fly under the radar. My name is Sarah Khan, I am an artist. My practice is about people and ideas that are overlooked and underrecognised. I commissioned eight artists to create artwork in their workplace and the invitation only went to artists who had jobs for which they weren't employed as artists. And so I was interested in how people eke out time and space to create art when they've got a day job. They were creating artworks in secret. Some of it was underneath tables. Some of it was little QR codes linked to sound pieces. Somebody was in Holloway Prison using the leftover materials from their workshops to create beautiful little sculptures. I like creating things which are slightly secret. I'm interested in retrieving a bit of the power that I feel has been taken away from me just through circumstances of life. Having that little moment of triumph when I think, nobody knows I'm doing this, but I've done it. Just that moment, that is the artwork to me. My name's Angela. I am part of Take Collective, a group of 15 to 25 year olds. We programme events and festivals for young people over at Take Britain and Take Modern. The aim is making sure that all audiences feel reflected within these spaces. And if they don't, looking at innovative ways of making that place where everyone feels welcome. In terms of established artists that the art community reveres as permanent fixture in the way art works, they definitely paved innovative ways that influence and has had an influence on even the current works that we see in young emerging artists. However, the majority of these revered artists, unfortunately, are typically white, typically male, typically not alive. I feel that this reverence sometimes overshadows new and creative ways of art being made and being viewed and being interpreted. In art education, you get students to copy a piece of work in a style. And I think that this can be really useful. You're learning about how they're applying paint or how to sculpt the clay. But the creative bit of it happens when they're doing their own responses, combining their ideas with different artists, and that they're really considering what they like and what they're trying to say in the work. If I picture Picasso as a boy growing up in Spain, you can see him going to museums and devouring the art of the past. Classic themes of reclining nudes, famous portraits, still life painting, they really are his visual catalogue. So he's in conversation with painters of the past, but bringing to it the experience of the moment. People referred to Picasso as a thief because of the way that he would scavenge constantly, phenomenally aware of what was going on around him, and take it all in. It doesn't diminish anyone's originality one iota that what they did was launched from the world that they knew. In fact, originality is taking what's familiar to everyone and bringing it to a place no one had ever thought of before. The more you're trying out ideas and seeing certain things fail and learn from those mistakes, the better the progress you're likely to make. 
I'm Anthony Brandt. I'm a composer. I teach at the Shepherd School of Music at Rice University. And neuroscientist David Eagleman and I have just co-authored the book, The Runaway Species, How Human Creativity Remakes the World. It's a lightning bolt view of inspiration. If you sit under a tree and wait long enough, ideas will just spring into your mind. But actually, you need raw materials to work on. Taking in the world is a very important part of creativity. Creativity is really about working material, whether it's some source that exists around you that you love and you appropriate and you start taking apart and twisting around, or something that you've yourself made that already has that inner DNA in it that you're twisting around and reshaping and so on. I looked at composing and I thought, if I had to come up with a toolkit that would explain all the things I need to be able to do as a composer, what would that be? So I thought, okay, so I need to be able to do a theme in variations. Take some standard thing and refashion it and remodel it. Picasso is a visual arts advocate for that. He has all of those variations on Velasquez and Manet, etc. The second thing I needed to do was be able to deconstruct things. For instance, in the middle portions of a Beethoven symphony, you never hear the full theme. You only hear little bits and pieces of it. And I needed to be able to combine ideas and put them at the same time. A music counterpoint would be a great example of that. How can I take it apart? How can I create a variation on it that gives you tools for actually working on material? Now the question was, could I apply that to other arts and beyond? I started to feel that I could look at visual art, I could look at sculpture, I could look at dance and describe it in very similar ways. All creativity is based on digesting the world, chewing it up and putting it together in new ways. One of the most beautiful comparisons I heard recently was somebody comparing Picasso to Miles Davis and saying it's like somebody who continuously plays with his own language and vocabulary and continually reinvents. And in a way, if you are interested in that language, be it painting or music making, Picasso, it's not a figure you can bypass. Well, I'll just put the lights on here. So these so we're entering DIY Space for London. DIY Space for London is a cooperatively run space. Kind of all sorts of things happen here. There's no hierarchy in the structure of who runs it. It's completely run by volunteers. People won't make assumptions about your gender identity, your background or things that you're interested in. It is about creating a community. I think that's what grabs people and makes them enjoy their first visit. My name is Estella Adieri. I'm a member of DIY Space and a part of the Sound Workers Collective. First Timers is now a yearly festival that's held at DIY Space for London. It's an opportunity for bands to play their first gig. For your band to qualify to take part, you need to have one member who's part of a marginalized community in some ways. A big part of first-timers is the demystification of playing in bands and playing music. We provide vocal workshops, lyric writing workshops. We have big jam sessions where people can try loads of different instruments and we'll play a song together. Our workshops show people maybe it's a little bit easier than they thought and even if they do make any mistakes along the way that it doesn't matter and nobody's going to judge them. 
We always get a really good crowd. They're always really supportive of every band. If you make a mistake or you need to start again, the audience is only going to cheer harder for you and they go out of their way to make you feel comfortable on stage. You don't have to be playing crazy guitar solos to be considered worthy of being in a band. Your creative output is valid, no matter what form it takes. There's no upper age limit. I think our eldest participant this year was 64 and she was still rocking. So in 1932, Picasso was in this moment of intense preoccupation with where he was in life, just having turned 50, having achieved everything he wanted to achieve, but thinking he didn't want to stand still. He wanted to be young again in a certain way, reinvent himself. Everywhere one feels this sense of somebody bursting at the seams and trying new things in life, be that relationships, be that engaging with different art movements, be that going to new places and leading a different life. 1932 was as though Picasso's whole life were his studio. He was in control. Everything was in a way perfect to be extremely productive. Soon after, this balance goes completely out of culture. To Picasso, one of the most distressing results is that he can no longer produce. He can't make art. He describes it as one of the worst years of his life. When this lull occurs in the mid-1930s, it's almost like a sickness, as if one of his faculties is being taken away from him. Thinking about creative droughts, it's always environmental. The time when I've been most frustrated by not making work or not quite knowing where I was going with my work is after I had my daughter, I'm a single parent, and I had almost no time to think and was utterly exhausted, of course. The way I actually really sort of step forward is movement. I go walking, I go cycling. I think it's almost kind of that little as I ended up going back to work and was travelling between wherever I was working. It's the thinking space that then made me realise, oh, I seem to be collecting all this information. And then gradually that becomes something. And it's almost like building up these materials and one day that will infiltrate into an artwork. Creative blocks are a lot of time caused by multiple assumptions that are getting in each other's way. You've got five things that you're trying to accomplish, but actually they're incompatible with each other. And one of those or more of those assumptions has to go. And so you have to kind of have this very careful introspection to say, what am I trying to do here? And can I spell out the things that I'm trying to put into this work? And are any of those things in conflict? It could have to do with the audience reaction or the emotions you want them to feel versus what you're trying to express. It could have to do with certain formal constraints or aesthetic judgments built into your work that are holding you back from what it is that you really need to say. When I feel in those kind of ruts where I feel very fearful or insecure, I just remind myself that where I really most enjoy living, win, lose, or draw is on the field of play, rather than just sitting up in the stadium stands watching other people play the game. And that gets me back going. Get your shit out of my car. 
Outside of DIY Space for London, I play in quite a few bands. I started off playing in a band called Junk. I play guitar and sing in that band. With writing my own music or my own lyrics, it's really hard not to continuously judge what you're writing in a negative way. Because it's so personal using your voice and it's not like as a classically trained vocalist. I didn't feel very confident about being able to do that. To overcome that, I really like bouncing off somebody else creatively. In Junk, I'd really enjoy having practices with Danny because we work quite intuitively with each other and it always makes it really fun. As we played more shows, I think I've managed to grow my confidence just by like writing things that I felt comfortable singing or that were meaningful to me. So it's kind of whittling away at that inner voice that was telling me, oh, that performance wasn't very good. But actually, at least one person went to that show and was like, oh, I really enjoyed that. That helps me to feel like, oh, maybe it's not that bad. <laughs>Anthony Brandt and Estella Radieri. This podcast was a Resonance production produced by Samuel Shelton Robinson with executive producers Simon Belitho and Minnie Scott. The EY exhibition Picasso 1932 Love Fame Tragedy is part of the EY Tate Arts Partnership with additional support from the Picasso Exhibition Supporter Circle, Tate Americas Foundation, Tate International Council, Tate patrons and Tate members.